my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to another episode of Big Money Energy, where we talk to super successful and self-made people to find out exactly how they did it, how they went from nothing to something. I'm Ryan Sutterhand, and today I'm joined by one of the stars of ABC's Shark Tank, a best-selling author and extremely successful businesswoman, Barbara Corcoran. We discuss how growing up in a family with 10 kids teaches you how to survive in a competitive business like real estate, why New York real estate will stay strong even in a down economy, and the golden ticket to building a successful company. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode. Hi, Barbara. Nice to be here, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming in. You are um, the first Corcoran, quote unquote, agent, well, also the first Corcoran to come into our, our new office here. I am Tribeca. the Corcoran You're the, in. the one. Yeah, the I'm one. not an agent. I have a thousand questions I want to ask you. And most of the people who work with me, especially a lot of the women who work with me, when they found out that you were coming in here, I, my phone, I, I've turned it off now, so there's no issues. I could ask you questions for 10 hours because they have so many. One of our agents, actually, uh, Rachel in San Francisco, nearly jumped on a plane just so she could be here to meet you. I think you spoke at Barclays a while ago when she was working on the trading floor there and you changed her life. And I hear that from a lot of people, which is really, really incredible. 
incredible. So good on you for doing that. Before I get into a lot of the real estate questions that I have, um, and obviously Shark Tank questions and, and everything that I think goes through my mind about you, I want to go back for a second because I, I, I have three sisters and two brothers. Um, I was born in Houston, Texas, grew up there, bounced around Long Island, outside Boston, way before I ever came to New York. And I was basically the middle child. I had older siblings, um, and then I had my little baby brother. And so I had that kind of like, uh, I guess, middle child syndrome, even though I didn't think I did when I was growing up. But you're one of 10. I'm curious, what's a middle child syndrome? Middle child syndrome is like is the kid in the middle who doesn't get all the attention because they were the firstborn and they're not treated like a baby because they're the last born. They're the one in the middle who like, okay, did you eat? You ate? Okay, great. You're going to live. Or you went to school? Okay, great. You're going to live. And so you have to figure out things on your own. It's a real, I read about it once. I would think it would be the best position. I was a middle child. I knew it. See, I knew it. You get to be yourself. No expectations on the top or the bottom. It's a terrific spot. Do, were you pushed a lot as the middle child? Were there heavy expectations on you? Do you remember any of that from your brothers and sisters? Not at all. The way I saw it, I had an older sister on one side of me who protected me from the top. Yeah. And I had a younger brother on the other side of me, and he protected me from anything that was going to come from the bottom. I would never switch my, my seat. But what's great about growing up with 10 kids uh, which is an advantage to every child, I think, yeah. is you only have two parents to go around. You have 10 kids who want attention. So you learn how to compete. Yes. And if I were to say one thing that prepared me for the real estate career that I enjoyed, it was the ability to compete. And I learned it at home. And how did I compete? I became the most creative child. So I could put on every game on the streets that happened in our neighborhood. And I was in charge. I could open up rock stores and sell rocks. I could put on Broadway shows in the basement on a rainy day. I could get my parents' attention. Yeah. And that was a huge advantage going into this crazy, wacky, competitive business that we're both in, don't you think? That's a big part of being the middle child because you're not guaranteed attention. I think that's a big deal. And uh, for us in the real estate business, in the sales business, in the television business, all day long, I'm trying to figure out how to get more attention from our clients, our developers, our agents, the people we're pitching. And as you say that about putting on shows and figuring out things to do, I, I, I'm reminded of all the times I got my little brother to do things with me to perform in front of my parents, like magic shows. You know, we'd make little movies and my little brother, I'd force him to do it so that there always could be attention because I didn't, I didn't have the throwing arm. My older brother had the throwing arm. He was the quarterback. My little brother had the throwing arm. He was the pitcher. And then I was just in the middle. <laughs> I like you know, theater. Ryan, you were nicer than I because you shared the limelight with your brother, at least. I was never that way. If any of my siblings did anything for me, like my sister Mary Jean made my bed every day. My sister Denise wow. did my dish night. I never shared the credit. It was like, <laughs> what do I do to get them to do the dishes for me on my dish night? And all you had to do is compliment them when they were doing the dishes the night before. <gasps> How do you do those dishes so well? <laughs> so you were a nicer sibling than I. You shared the credit. Not for me. I was out to get the attention. Yeah, that's yeah. short and simple. So that competitive nature, you you then you graduate college and you get into real estate. But one question I have, because I don't know what the answer is, that's why I'm asking it, is a lot of us, I think, who got into the real estate business, it wasn't our first choice. It was kind of, okay, I could try this, let's see what happens, or do something else. Where would you be today had you not said, okay, I'll get into real estate? Who knows? Maybe I'd be a waitress still at the Fort Lee Diner. 
where really? I really is that a real answer? Uh, no, but I, you never know. But I imagine I would own a chain of diners today because I always thought I was smarter than my boss and I could run a diner a little bit better if only given the chance. Uh, but where would I be? I think I would have been in some kind of a career making publicity and using my mouth to make a living and probably advertising, public relations, uh, maybe even politics, uh, anything that I could sway people with my ability to sell. Yeah. And, you know, as well as I do, if you can sell well, you can pretty much enter any field and do well. Uh, because there's always a need for a salesman in every spot. And yeah. when I say salesman, it sounds like it's not so important, uh, but it's essential to every business. You can't sell a product or service. You don't have a business. So I think I would have just been leading something, uh, using my mouth to lead. Yeah. And you've always been a good talker. I was a good talker outside of school, but in school, I didn't say a word because I never had the answer. So it depended on the form. But in my 22 jobs I had before I started real estate, uh, my gift in each of those jobs was I could talk. I could talk. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And why did you stick it out? I mean, I can't imagine your position in the 1970s getting into the real estate business, which I was not around. Uh, Too bad you missed a great time. How did you muscle through that? Because I think people listening to this now, they think things are tough now, but they don't know what it was like for you building your career and your entire business. What got you out of bed every day when you had a bad day or you lost agents, lost deals? I don't think I ever had the thought for a moment that I might fail. And the reason for it was I was so busy building yeah. that I had no time to give anything any thought. And much like a teenager that gets in trouble, if the hands aren't busy, my mind was so occupied with building that business every day that I never had the thought that it could fail. Uh, there was one juncture where I actually, I guess I'd have to admit that I warmed up to the thought of going out of business. And I don't know what year it was, but nothing was going on. Two thirds of the competitors in New York City were down. I had no cash. I had no receivables. I had whining salespeople. And I actually thought of actually announcing the business was closing. I, I tried everything, but uh, funny enough about adversity, right? Popped into my head the one day, one price sale. And I made over a million dollars one week later in two hours, uh, selling 88 unwanted apartments at the same price to a line of people that didn't know they wanted to buy until they were going fast. <laughs> and boom. I opened another office that same week as my competitors continued to go out of business. That was probably the only 11th hour uh, duress I had. But thank God I did because you never know what you're made of until uh, the chips are against the wall. That's where you find your greatest courage or you find your greatest graciousness to admit defeat, one or the other. But you only have a black or a white way to go. <laughs> and fortunately, I thought of a creative idea, as I always thought, somehow. Uh, to save the day, so to speak. Yeah. I created a market that everybody said was not there. Yeah. And I must be honest, I was half surprised by it myself. I thought it could work, it can't work, but let's give it a shot. <laughs> Throw it against the wall and see what happens. But that morning when I went around to a makeshift temporary office on 83rd Street on 1st Avenue and saw 200 some odd people waiting in line for 88 apartments that nobody wanted the day before, I'm like, holy shit. Look at this. And uh, of course, I was smart enough to have pre-signed contracts and giant stacks of people walked in and said, they're going fast. Nobody asked who signed those contracts. Are they real contracts? 
But uh, there's something very alluring in the real sales concept in good markets and bad markets that everybody wants what everybody wants. Nobody wants what nobody wants. So we took the nobodies and made them somebodies. (laughs) And everybody wanted them that morning. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. How did you convince the developer to do that sale and to do that at those price points? I mean, I, I think about all the developers I have now, right? We're post COVID. There's a lot going on. There's and there's a mass oversupply of new condo inventory. You could see a lot of it from our window here in Tribeca. There's stalled projects left and right. And I wish I could go to all of them and say, hey, here's the thing. We're going to lower all prices to a million bucks a unit down from whatever their schedule A prices are, and let's get it going. But they would have lender pushback. It would say it would be tough. How how did you do that? 
I'll tell you what's defeating you on it, if I might say, is your own limitation of thinking it can't be done. There is a way. There's always a way. Um, What you have to appreciate uh, more than anything in a terrible market is everyone's needy. And so the same guys that wouldn't be open to something a year before when things were rosy are totally open. I mean, I had those units owned by Equitable Insurance, very powerful company in town at that point, financing the job, along with Bernie Mendick, who was the biggest developer of that day. Uh, But they had nothing to lose by trying something. They had nothing in hand. The bank had nothing in hand. The developer had nothing in hand. And so it was like, hey, listen. We're not lowering the prices. We're evening out the prices because it doesn't make sense that people could grab a one bedroom, two bedroom, or studio at the same price. Yeah. And once the two bedrooms, the one bedrooms go, believe it or not, if there's not enough to go around, people will want the studios. And that's exactly what happened. There were level prices and you had to wait in line and there wasn't enough to go around. And so they took a shot at it because what did they have to lose? All I asked them to do was to give me two years free maintenance because I needed a sales incentive. And yeah. why did they give me two years free maintenance? Because they weren't going to sell those suckers for two years anyway, and they knew it. And so what was I really asking for? I was just taking the cards and just reshuffling the deck. And they gave me a shot, and it worked. And it worked. And they got out of trouble. I made my million, a little more than a million. I made my million dollars plus, And I was able to stay in business, thank God. Yeah. Wow. You got to revisit your story here, if you don't mind my saying. You could edit this out if you want, but you got to revisit your story in your headset on this one. Come on. Look at everywhere I look, there's a problem. There's a problem. We do. And I think if you were to ask the, the brokerage community in New York City now, they probably know us mostly for our out of the box ideas and creative thinking. We were doing auctions in the city by lowering prices to below cost numbers to freeze out the marketplace so that Street Easy would be completely useless so that buyers wouldn't pay attention to other inventory. They would just say, okay, well, now I got to see what's going to happen to 64 West 87th Street because somehow that just went from 12 to 6. Something's going on. Let's see. We would then drive traffic that way and put the price up. And then inventory just started changing. And then it didn't seem as exciting anymore. So we changed it up over and over and over. When did you open your second office? everyone's got their first, but when did you open your second? The second office is the hardest office. I think I had 14 offices when I sold. The second office is the hardest office. It was on the west side, uh, one block from Zabar's. And it was the hardest office because I couldn't cut myself in half. I didn't realize till I opened my second office that I was the power in the shop. Yeah. I was the mother. I gave the love. I drove the people. And I couldn't jump back and forth between east side and west side. Uh, but it was also my opportunity to learn the greatest lesson of my life. That is, I didn't have to multiply myself. I had to find someone with talent. And I hired Barbara Bryan, a sweetheart of a woman. On first glance, you wouldn't think she was a powerhouse. She didn't have my style, but she knew how to love people the way I knew how to love. And she nurtured those salespeople to become a force on the West Side within two years flat. And after that, I had the golden ticket to building a giant company find the talent, and then build an office around them. I never opened offices and looked for talent. I'd stumble into anybody in any walk of life and think, you know what, they would be a great mom. That's the key to a successful brokerage office. And they would be great at judging people. And then I'd open an office around that talent. And that's how I got in many marketplaces, simply because I found the talent first and built the walls around them. Yeah. How many agents did you have at that time? 
At, when I opened that second office, probably, I don't really recall, probably 30, 35 maybe. And the goal was just to physically be on the other side of town because you needed to have that convenient office location? Not really. There was a common belief at that time, which had been true, but I could see it was no longer true, that people wanted east side, wanted east side, and people wanted west side. We had territories yeah. in town. Uh, brokerage firms did one territory versus another, but I could see those markets blending. And I wanted agents that knew both markets and no one did. And so we cross fertilized across the park, basically. And uh, we were able to take clients from the east to the west and show them more stuff. And even if they thought they didn't want Central Park West when they came in for Park Avenue, we sold them Central Park West because they'd get a park view that they didn't get on park. And so we built a bilingual, if you lingual, whatever that word is, agents who could talk both languages. For both sides. And then we did the same thing down in the village. People said the village market was not a purchasing market. I saw it very differently. It was delicious down in the village. Then Soho, then Brooklyn early. I mean, it's just that people, the customer change and the brokerage firms were the last ones to change their interpretation. And so we got ahead of the other firms because we listened to the customer and watched what their new habits were. And they were shopping everywhere. Not immediately, but little by little, they started shopping everywhere. Today, you take them east side, west side, downtown, uptown, Brooklyn. You got to be versed in everything, as you well know, because you so successfully do it. But in those days, no one believed that would happen. (laughs) Seems preposterous, but no one believed that would happen. It sounds so crazy now thinking about how you even sold real estate then. How would you generate leads? How would your business generate leads at the time? Was it mostly referral, personal networking, or were people coming into the storefronts and going to the file cabinet? Well, initially we had no storefront and we were in whatever scrappy spaces we could possibly afford. Uh, we generated leads uh, through advertising for them. And I had a simple ad. It sounds ridiculous because the New York Times classified was the only billboard in town. Yeah. Uh, there was no streets, you know, internet, nothing. Yeah. And so uh, the message was, welcome to New York. And uh, we trained people on that initial call how to be friendly. No one expected that from the city. We had friendly agents. And then the minute I could afford a corporate campaign, I relabeled my brokers the power brokers, but we took full page ads out with them standing with their kids, their dogs, looking just like the people you'd like to hang out with. Okay, middle America more than New York City tough guy. And people bought into the image and they thought we'd be nice to work with, and they were right, we were great to work with, we had nice people. And they weren't eaten alive, which is what people thought was gonna happen when they worked with an agent. So we went counterintuitive to what people expected. And my agents were groomed to be those people that we put out there, which initially was kind of bullshit, but eventually became true, right? Like everything does. What was the scariest part about owning your own business? Because something I'm thinking about when you said you didn't have time to fail reminds me of obviously that book and the financial crisis and too big to fail. But I like that. And we, I think we operate in the same way. It's, you know, on the 15 minute mark all day long, just go, 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 go. The faster you go, the more you do. We just don't have time to fail. It's going to work out and our backs are up against walls and we figure out what those walls are every day. But was it that day that you thought the business might go under and you created that market or was there there ever a general fear that the real estate market might completely change and people not want to come to New York? And I'm thinking about that obviously in a post-COVID world now. Well, banish that thought because it's just never going to happen that people won't want to come to New York. Of course. Um, I know because I've lived through probably four dramatic cycles in the years I was building my firm. Uh, and I could tell you uh, that everybody 
in the end comes to New York. Yeah. It's one of those towns because it's built on change. You think about the essence of the heart of New York City is change. That's the heart. And so you have to expect change. So I watched many groups of people leave New York. Corporate America left New York. We'd never have corporations in New York ever again. Everybody bought into it. Yeah, yeah, Union Carbide went out. A few of the banks went out. And two years later, they were back in. Uh, the Japanese that were fueling our market, the highest prices in condo history, uh, left. Uh, the Chinese came home, scooped it all up. Okay. Then they left. The Germans came in. And then the yuppies came in. And then the whatever. You know, if there's one thing you have to believe about New York, it's always here. The heartbeat of the city has changed. Without it, it wouldn't survive. It needs that flushing in, flushing out all the time. And your markets fly up and down as a real estate agent with it. But I always saw that as an opportunity to make money because if nobody's changing, there's no deals. If it's a buyer's market, seller's market, up and down, there's always deals. There's always ability to make you 6%, which I know has diminished a bit today, but there's always an ability to make money if you have change. That's why you need a broker. No change, you don't need brokers. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. How did you lead your firm through those those recessions, though? You just said you went through four big market changes as somebody who's leading a whole group with multiple offices and multiple other moms and people that are calling you every day. I know in the last time that we spoke, you mentioned a good part of your day was kind of nurturing your superstars. How did you keep the business excited? How did you keep people motivated when everyone was talking about how negative things are and the New York Times every day is saying how bad things are. I stayed close to people to listen hard as to what they were most frightened about. And then I addressed those fears smack between the eyes on regular sales meetings, no matter what was going on. I brought my people together and I told them the way I saw the future, or short-term future, what their greatest fears were. And I gave them my best advice to get over it. And I spoke from my heart uh, because I didn't want to fool anyone or cheerlead anyone. I love this family. These were my kids. I found them. I groomed them. I supported them. And out of sheer love, I couldn't mislead them. And so they believed me. And that's called inspiration, but not because it's trumped up, uh, but because it was heartfelt. And so when 9-11 happened, and the world thought that uh, the city uh, was going to be over brokerage-wise. Nobody was buying a thing. Yeah. And most of downtown moved out. We couldn't get into show apartments. I collected everybody together three days later at the Pierre Hotel. And people were crying. Uh, people were so upset. And I told them they're about to witness the biggest market they had ever seen, which sounded bizarre. But I believed it. I said, everyone around the world sees New York City and it's bravery and it's pain on their TV set every single night. And everybody around the world is gonna fall in love with New York. And so the deals you don't have now are gonna come back by storm in six months. And you're gonna have an entire international community who wants to see a slice of New York. And that's exactly what happened. 
Yeah. And then we all held hands and sung God Bless America today. Uh, that moment, because I know it sounds hokey. It wasn't a show. It was intended for that moment to make people feel we were together. Yeah. And people went out and believed they were going to make a killing, and they did. Within nine months after 9-11, our sales, I think, increased roughly 80% over where they were before 9-11 because the world came back by storm and so did the city. I think people are always smarter than you think they are, but particularly with your family, you cannot lie or mislead. You just have to really think uh, what you really believe and share it. And I was out to protect my people. They were, they were everything to me. They were my family. They had to be... Uh, not messed with, so to speak, you know? Yeah. The work-life balance question comes up all the time. And how did you run a massive business that everyone knew all around the world and still raise a baby at night and the weekends? I mean, how did you, how did you do that? How do you make that mental decision of where to put your time? Well, first off, I don't think there's ever, even without a baby, there's ever anything as managing your time, like that balance you just have to chop yourself. Yeah. So many hours for this and so many hours for that. I had a practical approach. When Tommy was born, I wasn't at work at 7.30 every day, which I couldn't wait to get to work. I'm surprised I didn't get in before the doorman downstairs, really, on his shift. Uh, but uh, I started going to work at 9.30 because I was nursing Tommy. Yeah. And, uh, and I also wanted to hang out with him for a while. And then I was leaving the office at three o'clock to get the larger end of an evening with my child. And so how did I do it? I chopped my day. I had a shorter work day. Now, could I have built the Corcoran Group as quickly as I did in those years if I had had a baby? Absolutely not. Because something else happens when you have children. You get sibling rivalry that plays out in your heart. And that's a threat. You know, it's this thing, oh, I should be at home, I should be at work, I should be at home, I should be at work. And that can be exhausting. And so I realized that sibling rivalry played out in my heart between my top agents who wanted me now, wanted something, and I wanted to be there 150%, and my kid who was crying. (laughs) I even built a huge office with a playpen, with a nursery. (laughs) I got it all. I painted that a certain color, my office a certain color. So you could have both. But I brought Tommy in one day and realized you can't be in both places. So I chopped up my day is how I managed that until I sold the business, of course. Now, I want to fast forward a a little bit in the time that we have left. Um, uh, You sold and then was your idea immediately to enjoy the rest of your life, all those crazy hours, the agents, you know, if, if I were to sell a company for $66 million today, I don't know, maybe I'd go to Greece. My wife is from Greece and she's always wanted to have at one point go to Greece. And so I feel like it would be hard for me, for our marriage, for me to, on that day, if I sold a company for a hundred million dollars to tell my wife, yeah, but, but I got to still do stuff. I think she might kill me. Well, I'll tell you something else. Uh, it wouldn't work as you well know. So you go to Greece for a week or two. Yeah. Big deal. Fine. She'll be happy. Yeah. Well, what was your question? No, the question was you sold the company, the world changed obviously, but then you kept at it. You kept working, right? You've, you got onto Shark Tank years later, you're investing in all these companies. When is enough enough for you or is it not? Ask anybody on any street corner uh, whether there's such a thing as having too much fun. Yeah. And they'll say, no, I want more fun in life. All right. I'm the lucky one that could constantly have fun. I don't go into any work that I don't enjoy 150%. 
I don't dedicate myself to anything I don't want to do 150% job at. And the reason for that is because I like to succeed. Sure. Maybe that's maybe a shade of insecurity, but I enjoy success. Yeah. And more importantly, I can't wait to get to what other people would call work. I can't wait to see what the day brings. Yeah. And I'm too curious to see what's around the corner. Imagine life without corners. Oh, my God. Terrible. I can't imagine. Yeah. So, no, no. I don't even know if I answered your question, but there I, you have it. You did. You did. What do you love so much about being on Shark Tank? And you're, what, 11 years into it later? I can take or leave it to some degree. Uh, what I love about Shark Tank is the opportunity to meet the entrepreneurs I meet on that show and to actually become part of their life and help them build a business and help them become who they're dreaming about being. I think I'm very capable of making those dreams come true. I always feel like I'm on that show playing fairy godmother. Bing, you're going to be rich. Bing, you're going to be rich. And it's not just about rich, it's about success. And the more injured the entrepreneur is, the more insecure they are, uh, the more apt uh, I am to fall in love because I have something to prove. And I wrap myself around those people like I wrap my neophytes at the Corcoran Group and they became superstars. I'm just doing the same thing. Uh, I found another family, which is good because I like a family. What's next? Well, right now, uh, we're going to have a TV series on my life. I'm pretty excited about it. I hope oh, wow. the, the series goes on enough seasons so that I, I die before it ends. <laughs> so I don't even get to see the ending. Okay. And it's a reality show, docu-series? A docu-series, yeah. Okay. Well, it's called uh, What's the Halfway Between Comedy and Drama? Dramedy? Dramedy. Dramedy. I can't get that word. That kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And of course, I'm in love with my podcast, Business Unusual, because... Yes. Uh, it's another forum where I meet people who dial into the 88 Barber number, which is constant, tell me their business issues, where they're struggling, where they're stuck. And I get to use the gift that I've realized after all these years of business, I, I have best, more than my mouth, I give great advice. I know how to get people from A to B and get them unstuck. And so I get to, again, have another phenomenal forum where I help people. And boy, oh boy, is it fun. And so my podcast is my sweet spot right now. <laughs> busy, busy. Because not to be busy. No, no. Because but you are busy. Forum, well, I'm not so busy. Well, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> well, I could be busier like if I don't sleep. But sure, I'm needing sleep at night. Yeah, I'm pretty busy, I guess. Yeah. But that that is uh, that taps into my great gift of being able to pinpoint people's personality and what would apply to that individual. Yeah. My last question for you, because I, I know we want to wrap up, uh, and I would I would not be happy with myself if I didn't ask this. You're starting a real estate business in New York City now by yourself, the weight on the world on your shoulders. What's the best advice you give? The one piece of advice? Yeah. You're talking about like your circumstance with your so many agents now to take it from here to there? Yeah. You know, we, we've, we're building again from the ground up in a very, very different world than even when I started in the business in 2008, you know, my lead gen, when I got into it was Lehman crashed and post ads on Craigslist, meet renters. Hopefully you can turn them into buyers. And it was Craigslist all day long. That was our thing. There was no money for, for ads, at least not for me. And now we're starting a brand new real estate company. We do a lot of other things, but on the brokerage side, what would your, what would your advice be? Well, for your specific circumstance, I would say the very important uh, street you must cross right now is away from the dependence 
on you for sales. You're not going to be able to build an empire unless you walk to the other side of the street and learn to sell through other people. It was hard for me. I was a powerhouse salesman when my business was young. When we had 14 agents, only 14, and I was producing 80% of the company income because I was a good salesman, I left it. Leap of faith. And I decided I was not going to sell. You can't do both. And I started hiring people to sell for me. And without that decision, I could have never built a powerhouse. Never. Your gift is marketing, your good looks, and your gift of gap. What you also have, which I think is your greatest gift, is you know how to motivate. Sure. And unless you make the time to work through other people and do nothing but motivate the crap out of them, you won't be able to build what you envision for yourself. And that's a big call. How do you move out of something you do so well that generates money? But I'll tell you one thing. The minute I did, everybody else made up for it. Yeah. Because I had faith in them. And they did it. They came through for me. Leap of faith. It's more than a leap of faith. It's brass set of balls. Got it. Leap of faith with a brass set of balls. Jump across the street. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thanks for coming on. A pleasure. Really nice hanging with you. I'm sure you'll be successful. You already are. If you're ready to take action today based on Barbara Corcoran's entire blueprint for how she got to where she is, go to bigmoneyenergy.com slash podcast to download an action plan that I put together for you as well as the show notes. That's bigmoneyenergy.com slash podcast. Find more podcasts like Big Money Energy on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Big Money Energy is hosted by me, Ryan Serhant. It's produced by Mike Coscarelli and Joe Laresca and executive produced by Lindsay Hoffman. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.